If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, take them out and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as you are turning there, if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those Bibles that is in a chair back in front of you. How are y'all doing? Good? Cold outside, but good and warm in here. Kind of, kind of good. I know that um, some of you have been out because you've been ill and... Gosh, it's just so good to have you back. First Timothy chapter 1. Those of you joining us on the live stream, it's good to have you joining with us as well. Um, we're just going to look at, I think, three verses. We'll start in the 18th verse, and we'll end up um, there in the 20th verse. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our desire in gathering together is to make much of you and your precious son and the power of the spirit. So may the spirit be near to us as we open up your word that you have blessed us with. May we see you, Jesus, in it. May we exalt you, stand in awe of you, worship you. May we be equipped to fight for you. See the great honor that has been placed upon us that we would be enlisted into your army to wage the good warfare. And so just be near to us in this time, Jesus. Be exalted among us. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated. My dad, um, for those of you that may not know, first of all, today's my dad's birthday. So dad, if you're watching, happy birthday to you. Um, But my dad is a combat veteran who served um, in the Vietnam War. And now, um, like, growing up, especially, we would have never, like, known that. No one on the outside would have known that. He isn't the type that would have a a bumper sticker or a license plate or wear a hat that would say anything about the military or the Army. The only way that we really as kids knew about it was my dad had a, a, a small... I don't know, like now we'd call it like a shadow box that hung up in the living room. And like I say, very small. And in that was a picture of my dad in his, uh, in his uniform and his dress blues, I guess, or just dress greens. I don't know. He was in the army, but in there, and then there were um, some medals that he had won and so, and, and, been a, and, and had received. And so as a kid, like I'm drawn to those, like, you know, drawn to those medals. Like, you know, I, I, I see them and I know them and but yet, like, I didn't really understand anything about what my dad had been through or war or any of those things. I remember one time um, a conversation happened, and I, I said to my grandmother on my mom's side, so not even my dad's mom, but I said to my grandmother on my mom's side one time, I said something about my dad. Yeah, my dad fought in a war, and he went over there, and he killed all the bad guys. And my grandmother, who never corrected me, she said, you know, I was like eight, but she said, no, Andy. That's not the way that it was at all. My dad was a member of their church uh, where my grandfather served as a pastor. And he's like, we prayed every single day 
that God would protect your dad. And we were so scared for him. And God did that. I remember um, as I got a little older, there was a time when my cousin Joe uh, rented the movie Platoon, and I, I watched some of it. it. was a lot of it I had to close my eyes. And I think in that, it was probably 12, 13, somewhere around there, that I was faced with like the reality of what war was. I mean, it gave me nightmares. And just thinking about that, even in regards to, to, to my dad. I remember one time a, an employee asked my dad, he said, uh, Mr. Lawrence said, uh, were, you, were you in the army? And uh, my dad was like, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, unfortunately, that's, that was his, that's his answer. Yeah, unfortunately, I was. And then they asked the question. He goes, oh, well, what did you do when you were in the army? And my dad said, I tried not to get shot. That's what I was doing. And as we think about those kinds of things, and I know for some of you, this like hits home for you as well. As we think about those kinds of things, and as we read 1 Timothy, we got to know this, that as Paul tells Timothy to fight the good warfare, to wage warfare, what Paul's telling Timothy to do here isn't out of ignorance. It's not out of immaturity. It's not out of being naive because Paul doesn't understand what warfare really is. He's not doing this as dramatic effect. But what he's doing here is in order to place gravity on what it is to be a Christian. He's using this as an illustration to instruct Timothy on what it is that we even um, fast forward in the future as to what we do in here as a church. That what we do here as we handle God's word and as we try to live godly lives, that it matters. Lives hang in the balance. We're talking about life and death the honor and the glory, not of a country, although that's a great thing and an honorable thing, but even more importantly, the honor and the glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so that all of those things matter. What we do in here, it matters. It absolutely matters. And so Paul uses these words judiciously. He uses them on, a, on purpose. As we go through these uh, couple of verses, I want to kind of give us a little outline Here's kind of the outline, um, and I, I'm pretty pleased with myself because it all starts with the same letter. Um, four things that we're going to see in this text. As first is the command or the charge. Either one could have worked. I could have gone for five. Gosh, that would have been fantastic. But the first one is the command. The next is the conflict, the commission, and then lastly, the consequences. So that's kind of the outline to give us an idea of where we're going. First is the command, and some of it will kind of get all tangled up, but here's the command. This command uh, in verse 18, this charge, that's the same word as command, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, we'll get there, but here's the command, that, you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. There's the command. There it is. There's the order. Is being passed down from the superior to the subordinate. What Paul said, and we looked at this, I think in week one, Paul saying this comes all the way up the chain of command. This comes all the way up as if it were from the commander in chief himself, Jesus Christ, sending this command, sending this charge to you. And here it is. It's being entrusted to you, Timothy. I'm entrusting this command. I'm entrusting this task. I'm entrusting you to carry this out. So the word entrust there is something like 
For some of you that may still have a safety deposit box, right? I remember growing up again, my, my parents had this safety deposit box that was at a bank and I don't even know what was maybe in there. And some of you maybe still today have a safety deposit box. And so it's something that is precious and valuable. You entrust it into this thing that would be secure. And in the same way, Paul is saying this to Timothy, Timothy, I'm entrusting this command and this charge, this thing to you. It's being deposited in you. What's the nature of this command? Well, the nature of what he's telling him to do, it's flowing from what we looked at a few weeks ago all the way back up into verse number three, that the charge that I'm giving to you is that you would charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So what's about to happen in the church of Ephesus is Timothy, this young pastor, is about to go toe-to-toe with the false teachers that have infiltrated the church at Ephesus. What he's saying is, I want you to confront them, rebuke them, correct them. And as you're doing this, Timothy, know this, you're waging the good warfare. Which brings us to the next point of conflict. He's saying, as you do this, conflict will ensue. But not just fleshly conflict, but this is spiritual conflict that is occurring here. There's a spiritual warfare that is going on even as we today preach the gospel. As you live a Christian life, there's a spiritual war that's at place. And of any of the churches that would have understood this, certainly it would have been the church at Ephesus, because Paul has already written a letter to them, the book of Ephesians, right? And in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about spiritual warfare. We see this in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's right here, right? That's what's earthly, what's human. We don't wrestle against that. It's not people that we're after. The true, the reality is it's not just the false teachers that we're after, but there's something bigger than that. There's something behind all of that. But what are we wrestling against? The rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this battle isn't just about you confronting human beings, but what's laying behind those human beings is Satan and his demonic uh, um, kind of structure that's at place. Like all of those things is refers to Satan and to his uh, minions, to his demons that are at, at place opposing the church. And so let's make a couple of um, we'll make a couple of statements of truths upon this. The, truth, the first truth was this. Christians are engaged in a cosmic war. The second truth is this, is that we as Christians, we have an adversary, a real adversary, and his name is Satan. Satan means adversary. That's what the word means. It means adversary. And Satan is a created being, created by God. He's been created. He was made as an angel. But there was sin in him. The sin that was in him is pride. We can look at a, a prophecy that's given in Ezekiel um, 28. And in that prophecy, we see a description of who Satan is. It comes as the king of Tyre. And it's like one of those prophecies we talk about that is like kind of a telescoping prophecy. It's a fulfillment in the present, but it's also pointing to something um, actually in the past. And so it's pointing at a king, a real man, this king Sire, but then, or the king of Tyre. But then as you read it on in it, you understand, well, King Tyre wasn't in the, in the Garden of Eden. And that's what Ezekiel is prophesying in that. 
But there was sin in the Garden of Eden before Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. And the sin was present in Lucifer, this angel. And in that, God brings judgment against him and against a third of the angelic host. And they are fallen. That's the terminology used. Even before mankind has fallen, they've been fallen. He's been excommunicated from the presence of God. Now, we understand God's omnipresent, but from God's presence proper. Satan and his demons, they're here on this earth. You go, well, what are they doing? Right, if they're here, what what are they doing? And I think the answer to that is found in the names that are given throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, for Satan. Think about this. How does he work? What's he do? Well, here's some of the names that he's been given. Is Satan is the adversary. So he's an adversary. He's coming against Christians. He's coming against Jesus and against God and against whatever is divine and holy and righteous and good. Another name that has been given to him is the accuser of the brethren. That's in the book of Revelation. So as an accuser of the brethren, who are the brethren? That's us as Christians. We're the brethren. And he brings accusations against us. He's the deceiver. In fact, he's called the one who, he's the deceiver of the entire world. So he deceives. He's called the enemy, the evil one, a liar. In fact, Jesus says he's the father of all lies. Every lie ever told, every lie ever spun out, it has as its, uh, it it finds itself uh, in its origin in Satan. He's a murderer. He's the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And lastly, he's called the tempter. So you get a picture of what he does. Truth number three, Satan hates and stands in opposition to everything that glorifies God. Don't take this battle personally. It really has very little to do with you. You're just in between him and what he's really after, which is God. Satan's really after, his real hatred is towards God. And what he's endeavoring to do is to diminish the power of God, the glory of God, the work of God, the purposes of God, and to thwart the will of God. That's what he's really after. Therefore, everything that glorifies God and everything that images the gospel, Satan comes against it. He hates it. He stands in opposition to it and he tries to thwart it at every opportunity that he can. Everything, let me say that again, that glorifies God, everything that images the gospel of Jesus Christ, Satan hates that, and he comes against that. And you go, well, like what? Well, I'll give you a short list. Well, like, first of all, you. Humans, we're made in the image of God, and Satan hates you, and he hates all humans. And he tries at nothing else but to stamp you out or stamp humans out. That's why abortion exists. Abortion isn't rooted in a political agenda, but in a satanic agenda. Abortion has nothing really to do with human rights, women's rights. It has everything to do with the satanic and the demonic trying to stop and come against the image of God made in human beings. If he can't stamp you out or stop you through abortion, then he'll come after you in all kinds of ways in sin to try to kill you, to try to stop you, to try to stamp you out. Addiction and depression and suicide and on and on and on. In fact, Jesus says this in John 10.10, the thief comes to kill, 
right? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what his agenda is. It's to steal, steal life, steal the glory of God, steal whatever he can, to kill and to destroy. That's what he's after. But Jesus says, I have come to give life and life more abundantly. He's against marriage. He hates Christian, especially Christian marriages. That's why Christian marriages are so tough. And see, ladies, you thought it was just because your husband breathed so loudly. You thought that's why your marriage was so hard, right? Husbands, you thought just because she spins so freely, you thought that's why it was hard, but it's not. It's hard because there is an adversary that comes against Christian marriages because Christian marriages, again, it images the gospel. All marriage should image the gospel, but especially those of us as Christians. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. That's an image. That's an illustration of the gospel that is being put on display in our marriages. And Satan hates that. He tries to destroy it. He tries to destroy it from within, through argumentation and conflict and personality, whatever else he can do to destroy it. And he tries to destroy it from without, on the outside, through all kinds of temptations. He hates Christian families. Absolutely hates it. Those of you in the room that are endeavoring to raise your children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord, you're doing spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict every single day. Every single day. That's why, that's why family devotion looks like a complete train wreck. It looks like a three-ring circus, goat rodeo, whatever you want to call it. That's why it looks like that, because Satan hates that. Now, if you're trying to raise heathens, as my grandpa would say, well, he didn't care about that. Raise heathens if you want to raise. But you're trying to raise up kids that know Jesus and love Jesus, serve Jesus. Well, he absolutely hates that. He hates our church. He hates it. He hates our love. He hates our unity. He hates the message that we proclaim because we preach the truth of Christ. We preach the gospel. He hates that. He tries to infiltrate that. He tries to disunify what the gospel is unified. He doesn't care what he uses, whether it's politics or ethnicities or preferences or mask or no mask or vax or no vax or the color of the carpet. He could care less what he needs to do in order to disrupt the unity. He'll plant false teachers among us, try to get us to abandon the gospel. He hates us. He hates your pastors, including me. In fact, Paul will say in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when we get there, when we talk about the qualifications of an elder, two times Paul will say to be careful lest you fall into the the condemnation, he uses that word, you'll call, fall into the condemnation that is in the devil. Another place to say, unless he steps into the trap set by the enemy, and it's as if Satan sets out to set up snares and to entrap pastors to try to discredit us, to cause us to sin, to believe lies, to teach lies, whatever he can do, he absolutely hates all of those things. What must we do? Well, we got to stand against him. We got to be wise to how he works. We got to engage in the conflict, just as Timothy's engaging in the conflict. Now, notice what Paul says to Timothy. How do you do this? What's standing behind this engagement into this conflict? Well, a commission has taken place. We see this in verse um, 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Now, first of all, is I I don't think I've mentioned this, but when Paul calls Timothy 
my son, I mean, he said that earlier, my true child in the faith. That's how he opens it up. He recalls him, you know, my child. He's not calling him like your child. He's not, certainly he's not putting him down here. In fact, this is actually the opposite. It's a term of endearment that Paul is using towards Timothy. That what we know about Timothy is that Timothy um, had a Jewish Christian mother. Her name is Eunice, and he had a believing grandmother. Her name is Lois. But Timothy's father was a Greek, and he was an unbeliever. We see this in Acts chapter 16. So according to Jewish law, Timothy would have been considered an illegitimate son. Because even though his, his mother and grandmother are Jewish, but his father was a Greek, so he would have been an illegitimate son, possibly even because nothing else is mentioned about his father. Possibly his father has either passed away or abandoned him. And now what has happened is Paul has a, kind of adopted Timothy. Paul's single. He doesn't have any children. And now he's adopted Timothy, and he looks at Timothy with this affection. He's taking him, kind of taking him in as my true child in the faith. And it's a reminder to us that church is family. Even we see this in Paul and Timothy. The church is family. It's the household of God. And he says, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, this one that I care so dearly about, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. And now what Paul's doing is he's calling into Timothy's remembrance an event from the past. There was a moment where Timothy was commissioned. For those of you that have ever been through a pastoral ordination, some of you may have witnessed a pastoral ordination. I mean, that's where we get the idea of an ordination service. It's probably coming from something like what Timothy would have undergone as this, um, as this commissioning would have taken place. Now, we don't have um, exact details. We could piece together a few passages of Scripture where Paul describes this ordination service, if you will, this commissioning that took place. We don't even know exactly where it happened. Maybe it happened at the church, his home church, the church of Lystra. We don't know, but a couple of things occurred during this. Not going to be on the screen, but maybe you want to write these down. Three things. This first thing is a gift was imparted. A spiritual gift was given to Timothy. Maybe it was the spiritual gift of teaching and preaching. Maybe it refers to, though, as the gift that's been deposited and entrusted into Timothy, even now, which would be sound doctrine. Maybe that's what Paul is referring to. But he's saying, Timothy, you received this from your mother and from your grandmother, from the church at Lystra. Like, this was occurring there. They've poured into you. You have this purity of doctrine and teaching. So a gift was imparted, teaching and preaching sound doctrine. Number two, a prophetic word was given. So at this time, the, prophet, the office of the, the prophet proper was still open. Um, that assumes a lot, but we'll, we'll leave that alone. We don't have a ton of time to cover that. The Bible had yet to be written. And so we see in the book of Acts, we see uh, prophets that happen. There's a prophet by the name of Agabus, for example, in the book of Acts. And so evidently some kind of prophetic word was spoken over Timothy. Again, we don't know all the details of that, but you can see that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 14. You can also see it again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. A prophetic word was given. Saw it here. The prophecies previously made about you. Number three is affirmation was extended. This is symbolized by the laying on of hands. That's what laying on of hands does. There's nothing actually being imparted, but it symbolizes affirmation. That's what it symbolizes. 
What he's saying is there was a, a group of elders in a church, the church at Lystra, and there were men like myself and maybe Silas, maybe other men here that we, we affirmed you and we affirmed the calling. We affirmed the gift. We affirmed what God was doing in your heart and doing in your life, Paul. And I mean, Timothy. And so what I want you to do is I want you to remember that. Remember that sense of calling. Remember that direction. Remember what God had done. Remember what God has called you to. And now I want you to go and carry out this charge. And so what Paul is doing here is he's instilling in Timothy a sense of duty. Now, duty, D-U-T-Y, that's not something we talk a lot about in Christian churches. We don't really talk about like, hey, we're under an obligation. We're under a sense of duty. We're like, no, everything's like free will. We do it if we want to do it. But that's really not true. That when God calls us, when God saves us, there is a sense of duty. Again, this military flavor is coming through in this text, is it not? I mean, those of you that have served in our armed forces, there was a moment where you stood before someone and you said a, you, you made an oath, didn't you? I remember watching my little sister, Hannah, as she joined the Marine Corps, to, as she stood in this room in Louisville in the federal building, and she's standing there like this, like scared out of her mind, getting ready to get on a bus to be shipped off to Paris Island boot camp. As she's standing there, she had to go through this little oath that she said. And as part of that oath, she made this, she made this promise. I promise to protect this country from enemies, both domestic and foreign, and on it goes. Now she's bound by that oath. She has a duty to fulfill to her country, ultimately even in that to God and to this country, to those that she spoke that to. And in the same way, you as a believer, you have been enlisted into the fight and into the war. And two things should fill your heart as you think about that. If you are a believer, go, I've never been commissioned. You were when you repented. You were when you were baptized. You were enlisted into God's army. Two things that should fill your heart is one is a sense of duty and the other is a sense of honor. Because the reality is it is an honor to serve Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It is an honor to serve on behalf of the King Jesus. It is an honor to serve in the kingdom of God. It is an honor and we are under the command of Jesus and the command of Paul, just like Timothy, that we would wage the good warfare brings us to truth number four, which is this. I, okay, I get it, get, get it. Then what do I have to wage this warfare with? Well, I had a whole section written going back to Ephesians chapter six, but my sermon just kept getting longer and longer and longer. And then I realized like, hey, Andy, you're not even writing a sermon anymore, bro. You're writing a sermon series, like quit it. And we edited that and pushed pause on that. And there'll be a day that we'll preach through the armor of God in Ephesians chapter six, where we'll look at every piece of armor. It's not something that you bring. It's something you put on, but it's something that Christ has given to you. But we'll stick with this text and we'll just say this. We've been equipped to wage the good warfare. And what have we been equipped with? Paul says two things. One is faith and a good conscience. Verse number 19. Holding faith and a good conscience, two things. Let's make it three. Faith, and let's talk about faith in two ways. Holding faith and a good conscience. In fact, we can even say this, that fits within one of the themes of 1 Timothy. One of the themes of 1 Timothy is belief and behavior. And think about that, faith 
and a good conscience. Belief that leads to behavior. We even saw that last weekend um, in, in the text that Pastor Sean preached on where he talks about this list of the law that comes against and he's, he's condemning sinners, like these types of sinners. And then he ends up with, he says this, it, it sounds like, where did that come from? He goes through that list, liars, perjurers, and, and then he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Like, wait, no, you're talking about sin and now you're talking about doctrine. How do those two things fit in? In fact, it goes even further in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. And it's the same picture we look at. What we believe leads to behavior. And he's saying that same thing. Your faith that you're holding on to, that's what you believe leads to behavior. So when we talk about faith, we could talk about faith in two different ways. And the Bible speaks about faith in two different ways. The first thing it talks about is, we could say it like this, the faith right? Capital T, capital F. That's something objective. That's not personal. That's something that's objective. That's the deposit that Paul has entrusted in Timothy. That's doctrine. That's, we're holding on to faith, the faith. We're holding on to it. We're holding on to doctrine. We're holding on to the apostolic teaching, the understanding of the gospel. I mean, that really makes sense as it flows from what we were saying last week, what he was going through and, and breaking up the difference between the law and the gospel so that we make sure that we clearly understand how the law is to be used and how it points us to the gospel. The same thing's happening here. It's giving further clarity. This may, that makes sense. He's saying you wage the good warfare as you hold on to sound doctrine. You lose sound doctrine. There is no longer a fight because you're just like the other false teachers. You gotta, what are you fighting with? Well, you're fighting with the, the sword that is the word of God. You're using it in battle. So you got to know what it says. You got to be able to use it. You got to be one, as he would say later on, you got to be one who's a workman who can rightly handle the word of God. It's what you got to be able to do. So first, in order to have, you got to have good discernment that comes from right doctrine. But there's another way for us to think about faith. Not only is it the faith, but there's also your faith something that is subjective, something that is personal. Maybe he's referring to Timothy's faith, or maybe he's referring to Timothy's faith in the faith. And I think that's probably what he's referring to. You're being equipped to fight the good warfare. You're getting equipped to stand the fight. What are you being equipped with? Well, you're being equipped with your faith. Protect that, hold on to that, your faith in the faith. Because if you lose either of those things, if you lose your personal faith in the faith, the gospel, who Jesus is, what Jesus has come to do, if you lose your faith in the faith, then you are of no use to the kingdom of God. And you can have all the faith in the world, but if the object of your faith isn't reality, it isn't sound, it isn't placed upon God, it isn't placed upon the gospel, then your faith is useless as well. That ultimately, that's what makes us mature believers. We're growing our faith in the faith is growing. And Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, you gotta protect that. You gotta hold on to that. Don't lose that. In fact, he'll say that again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. I feel like by the time we get to the latter chapters, we'll say, we've already said that. 
right? We've already, we've already preached on that because we keep pointing forward. But 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. That's both things. That's belief and, be, and behavior. And that's also the doctrine. You're keeping a close watch on yourself, your faith, and on the teaching, the faith. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourselves, yourself and your hearers. So you're holding on to the faith. You're holding on to your faith in the faith, knowing that it's Jesus that's at work. Jesus is fighting the battle. You've got full confidence in that, knowing who Jesus is. Jesus is the victor. Jesus has won. Satan's an already defeated foe. As we think about the spiritual warfare that's at place, you have faith in all of those things and also in a good conscience. Now, let's talk a minute about good conscience because Paul's already mentioned it once before and I feel like we didn't really unpack it. But back in verse number five, remember we talked about the, 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 the aim of our, let's see, the aim of our uh, charge is love. And he said that love is coming from a place and love is ultimately saying in us, love is coming from a pure heart and a good conscience. There it is again, a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so in scripture, what our conscience is, is our conscience refers to that aspect of our personality that discerns right from wrong. It's kind of like a a compass or a GPS, right? age myself a little bit, but they, we had these little things, they were called compasses, and we were in Boy Scouts, and right, we had to read them, you had to know, and they pointed north by the magnetic poles or whatever, that's why they always pointed north, and so then you'd find it, and you'd make a heading, or now we have this saying, like, GPS, turn right, right, at the next bend, turn left, unless you're like me and hate to be told what to do, and then you just turn it off, and it's like, I'm just going to guess, because I don't even want a GPS telling me what to do, I mean, that's rebellion on a whole nother level, but that's another sermon, But our conscience is kind of the same way. It helps us to discern right from wrong. Which way should I go? Which direction should I take? What's the right thing to do versus the wrong thing to do? That's what our conscience is given to us for. But here's the problem. In the fall, that gets all messed up. So imagine a a compass that's broken that no longer points north. Sometimes it points north and sometimes it points south. Think about your GPS, and some of you go, that is my GPS. Sometimes it tells you how to get there, and sometimes you end up in, in, a, in a pond, right, or in a lake, just like Michael and Dwight did. That's from The Office, for those of you that haven't seen that episode. But just imagine that, how, 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 how worthless and useless that would be. And in the same way, our consciences are like that. We can go to Romans chapter 2, I think, starting in verse 14, where Paul describes this, that our conscience, our human conscience gets all messed up in the fall. And now, sometimes we know right from wrong, and sometimes we don't. But listen, God is repairing that. That what we receive as we're born again, we receive a regenerate conscience. Now, again, it's not perfect, but it's better than it was. You have new desires been given to you. Paul says in the new covenant that no longer is God's law going to be written on stone tablets, but now it's going to be written where? In your hearts. And that's your conscience. It's been written on your conscience where now you have an understanding of God's moral law. And if you don't understand it intuitively, you can now read it. So we have this regenerate conscience. We have an informed conscience because as you read God's word, hopefully it's informing your conscience because there was a time where you thought, hey, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing X, Y, and Z. And then you read in God's word that there is a problem with you doing X, Y, and Z. And so now you will will inform your conscience. You'll submit and surrender to God's word. 
God's word will have authority over your life. You'll say, you know what? Even though my heart may think there's no problem with that, but I'm gonna bend my heart, inform my conscience, right? rewrite that, Lord, so that I now desire to do the other thing and not that thing. And we could give a hundred examples in, in, that, in place of that. And what Paul's saying is don't forfeit that good conscience. Don't forfeit that. Don't lose that. That's what's pointing you toward right living, leading you to love and to purity and to rightness and righteousness and holy decisions are happening from inside your good conscience. Our good conscience speaks to our motivation. Paul was saying back there in verse number five, it's love is the motivation in Christian service and Christian duty, duty in Christian ministry, as opposed to the false teachers who are motivated by pride and financial gain. The minister of God, he's not motivated by pride and financial gain, but he's motivated by love, a love for Jesus and a love for his truth and a love for his people. That's what motivates us. Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, don't lose that. Don't lose the reason and the motivation while you follow after Christ. Don't lose the reason and the motivation while you're in ministry. John Calvin said this, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. That oftentimes doctrinal errors are the result of moral problems. I've seen this a bunch. A crisis of faith occurs, but it really didn't begin in the intellect. It really began in the conscience. Crisis of faith are oftentimes born out of an avoidance to the moral implication of God's truth. You can be faced with that. I don't want to live that kind of life. I would rather have this sinful thing than God. And now all of a sudden, intellectually, God no longer exists and they abandon the faith and they're apostate. The reality is it didn't happen in their heads. It wasn't philosophical or intellectual. It was actually in their hearts. They love sin more than they love the Lord. What he's saying here is don't violate your conscience, Timothy. Don't violate that. Give in to that. If it's a conscience that's being informed by the Holy Spirit of God, lined out by Scripture, then don't go against that. Let me press this a little further for us. That when morals slip, doctrine ebbs, and the fight is soon lost. They're being built upon one another. Hold on to the faith. Hold on to your faith that's shaping you, but also hold on to your good conscience. And this speaks to us. Violating your conscience is something that speaks to every one of us. It speaks to everyday decisions that you and I live in. Everyday decisions that you and I have to make in dealing with the opposite sex. Whether you're going to feed that thought or you're going to let that thought kill that thought, let that thought lie dormant. Whether you're going to feed and you're going to enjoy that compliment or that glance or whatever that thing was, or whether you're going to kill that, that is your conscience that should be leading you to kill that. Don't go against that. Don't go against your conscience on what to wear or what to consume visually. Again, we're talking about the purity of our hearts here. Don't go against your conscience when it comes to how to handle your money. Your conscience is leading you, directing you. The conscious, the conscious disobedience, conscious disobedience, it kills 
It numbs. It corrupts your conscience. Do not sin against your conscience. That's what he's saying. Listen, I think this would be good for us in a gospel-centered church to, for us to hear this. So I'm going to have him put it on the screen. Listen, a pursuit of holiness, holiness of thought and life, that isn't legalism. That's Christianity. We should want to pursue holiness in living. Pastor, you've been reading them Puritans too much. I, maybe. But this isn't, this isn't Puritan thought. This is the implications of the gospel in a believer's heart. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means we're cautious of what we say. We're cautious of what we read. We're cautious of what we watch. We're cautious of what we listen to. We're cautious when it comes to our thoughts that enter into our mind. We're cautious of all of those sorts of things, knowing that oftentimes conscious disobedience to our conscience will lead to numbing and corrupting our conscience. What's the consequences of not holding to the faith, not holding to your faith, not holding to a good conscience? Well, the consequences is found in the example of Hymenaeus and Alexander, the latter part of verse 19 and verse 20. By rejecting this, they've rejected something. They've rejected something. They've rejected this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. So let that imagery, let that imagery settle in. A boat that just gets destroyed. A boat that gets capsized. A boat that's of no use anymore. They've made shipwreck. They've wrecked it. They've run it aground. But they shipwreck their faith. The thing that should be so precious to us, our faith in Jesus, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have, Paul says, handed over to Satan, that they may, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The consequences of abandoning the faith, of losing your faith in the faith, the consequences of wrecking the church with unsound false doctrine, the consequences of a corrupt conscience that leads you to sin, to moral failures, here's the, here's the consequence of that. You forfeit the protection of Jesus and his church. You forfeit the protection of Jesus in his church. What do you do with people like that? Well, you do what Paul says there. You hand them over to Satan. That's what you do with them. But here what Paul is um, outlining Paul is outlining the ministry of church discipline in the church. That's what Paul has done to Alexander and Hymenaeus. He's, he's exacted, he's enacted church discipline against these two men, presumably to be false teachers in the church. And it raises up all sorts of questions like, well, who do you discipline and how do you discipline and all of those kinds of things. And let me just say this, first of all is, you practice church discipline against sinners but not every sinner, because if you did that, then there'd be nobody here. <laughs> you'd have no preacher. You'd have nobody sitting in the chairs, in the pews. You'd have no membership if you exacted church discipline upon every member of the church, because the reality is we are sinners saved by grace, sinners who've been transformed to be saints. But here's what Paul is teaching. 
Those who jeopardize the purity of the church are to be removed from the church. And it's a hard and sobering teaching. But those who jeopardize the purity of our doctrine, those who promulgate false teachings, either in leadership or in the congregation, those who may stand on stage and preach or teach a false uh, doctrine, or now this isn't like sometimes may accidentally say Moses and the ark, right? That's not false doctrine. That's just a slip of the tongue. I, mean, I probably have said stuff like that. But people who persist in teaching something that is untrue, either it's in leadership or in the congregation, someone that may influence others in a community group, maybe what Hymenaeus and Alexander have done, they're to be removed from the church. Those who may jeopardize the purity of our unity. Paul will tell Titus in Titus 3.10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. That having nothing more to do with him, that's church discipline. That's excommunication. You remove them from the fellowship and from the body and from the membership of the church. Those who may jeopardize the purity of our witness by heinous and open and defiant and unrepentant sin. Yes, we're all sinners, but some may persist in public sin. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a member of the church in Corinth who's caught up in, in sin. Now, we'll just kind of leave it there. It's heinous sin, and it's ugly sin, and you know, there's kids in the room, and I know some of you parents aren't prepared to have conversations about things such as 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and so we'll leave it there. It's sin that's not even tolerated among pagans. Church is using them, parading them around as an example of grace in the church. And Paul corrects them and says, pronounce judgment upon them and remove them from among you. And in the same way, he says the exact same thing. You are to deliver this person to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is a ministry of the church working in partnership with Jesus where we pronounce someone an unbeliever. We break fellowship with them. There's a pronouncement of judgment, our judgment, in hope that they would repent before the future judgment, the final judgment of Jesus. It's us lovingly and graciously withholding fellowship from them as an illustration to them that they don't have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and the Spirit, that they're outside of the family of faith in hopes that they would repent and that they would turn and that they would come. That's what Paul says by turning them over to Satan. These are sobering passages. These are sobering truths as to the gravity of what we do here. As I said before, life and death, it hangs in the balances. The truth is, maybe you're here today and you're unprepared. Maybe you're unprepared for that final judgment. The turning over that takes place in this life is nothing like the turning over of final judgment. Maybe you're a sinner in the room who's yet to repent. You've yet to turn. You've yet to submit to Jesus. What's holding you back? What is it that's holding you back? I've been listening to an old hymn lately. It's just been like soothing for my soul. It's the old hymn, Rock of Ages. And in there it says, Rock of Ages cleft from me. Let me hide myself in thee. 
What are we hiding ourselves in Jesus from? We're hiding namely from the wrath of God. God's wrath is oftentimes unleashed in and through Satan. Satan's work, and there's protection in Jesus. There's protection in his church. There's protection found in him. We don't feel the full weight of Satan coming against us. And some of you, you you know nothing of that. Satan coming against you, it isn't just, your hey, your car doesn't start or your kids get a sniffle. It's the guilt and the condemnation you feel. It's those bad decisions that you make. It's a lack of peace in your life. You can know that today through repentance, through turning to Jesus, submitting to him, lest you stand before him in final judgment. Maybe there's a saint in the room who's playing with sin. Wage the good warfare against that sin. Wage the good warfare against that thing, that thing that longs to corrupt your conscience, that thing that longs to, as Satan said, he's here to do one thing, really. You're going to get at it in three different ways. He's here to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That tempting sin that looks so enticing and so good, it has a purpose, and it has an effect, and it is to steal, to kill, and to destroy you. Come hide in Jesus. Come hide in him. Find in him your all in all. Do not persist persist in open rebellion. Let's pray. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before his presence, the presence of his glory with great joy, To you, the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, may you receive all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Keep us. Jesus, keep us from stumbling. Hold us, carry us, bring us before you. Keep our hearts soft before you. Our wills submissive to you hearts in love with you, Jesus, all the way to the end. If you don't do it, we will certainly be like Alexander and Hymenaeus. We will shipwreck the faith. May we partner with you. May we look to you. Jesus, protect us. Protect our unity. Protect our fellowship. Protect our community. Protect our love. Such divisive times. Protect us. For your fame. And for your glory, we pray this. Amen.